0: So gut feeling is a real thing. Now, that does not mean that your gut's always right. Mm -hmm. Um, What it does mean is that that's a form of knowing you need access to. Had you developed your affective as well as your objective forms of knowing, Mm -hmm. do you have access to your emotional intelligence? And do not make the easy modern world mistake that just because that form of knowing is inarticulate verbally, Mm -hmm. don't think of it as unsophisticated. Uh, Your gut knowing is incredibly sophisticated. It's just not real articulate, which means you as a mature attempting to be an integrated person need to learn how to listen to yourself and tune into those knowings. Otherwise, you're working with a four crayon color box when you could have the 64.
1: (laughs) Hi, Michelle Florendo here and welcome to Ask a Decision Engineer. Listen in and find out how to untangle big decisions with less stress and more clarity. In all my years of teaching about decision-making, no topic generates more angst than the need to know. But how do you know what you know? How do you know when you know what you know? And how do you integrate this knowing into some of the most important decisions of your life. Today, I invited Dave Evans onto the show to talk all about these topics of knowing and discernment. Dave is the co-author of Designing Your Life and Designing Your New Work Life. He co-founded the Stanford Life Design Lab and holds the title of Discernment Lead for a Social Impact Accelerator. He shares a number of things he's learned from sitting with thousands of lives via the Designing Your Life programs, including how to go beyond cognitive knowing, the important distinction between certainty and faith, how to approach when things go wrong, and exercises for honing your discernment. Enjoy the episode. All right. I feel like I say this every time that I'm so excited to welcome my guests. But given just the little bit of chatting that we did before I hit record, I am uber excited to have you on the show. Dave, thank you so much for being here.
0: Michelle, glad to be here. We're going to talk about one of my favorite things this morning.
1: Yes. I am so excited to have you here on today to talk about discernment. Like, how do we know? How do we know when we know? And all of these different things. But before we dive into that, I want to pull back the curtain and have you give a little bit of a story about where all this design in your life, human-centric design stuff came from.
0: Right. Yeah, because and, and we often say, you know, I mean, prototype this and ideate that and plan and strategy and all this, but eventually you got to make a decision and you want to make a good one and you want, to, you want to sleep at night. So I'm like, how do you know when you know, you know? Mm-hmm. That's that's the killer. So we spent a lot of time on that question. So for me, you know, the, the formative origin story moment about when I'm asking, how, how do you know when you know? And I know I don't know. I have no idea how to know is I'm like 19. You know, I'm a sophomore at Stanford, 1972, 1973. I'm 69. You know, I'm old, you know, and, you know, I have 11 grandchildren, depending on how you count. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm you know trying to live my life in a meaningful way. And I've got a variety of motivations and mostly a lot of ambiguity and confusion and I walk into the Career Center, which you now ironically happens to be repurposed as the Center for Adolescence, where our dear colleague Bill Damon works, and is a purpose guy, by the way. But I walk into the then Career Center. I kind of go, hey, can you guys help me? And they go, why, sure. We have a whole building. that We love helping students. We would love to help you. I kind of go, that's great. So here's the question. What do I want to do? I kind of go, right, that's the question. I go, right, that's the question. They go, OK, so what's the answer? I kind of go, no, that's the point. And they go, well, you have to tell us. I kind of go, if I, I knew, I would tell you. We have this stupid conversation, and they kind of go, "Look, here's how this works. You you tell us what you want, and then we'll go get it for you. We'll help you go get it." You know, and kind of go, "Getting stuff's easy. <laughs> A hard question is, what do I want?" They kind of go, "Oh, well, you're supposed to know," you know. And now they just go, "Well, what's your passion?" You're like, "Oh God," you know. And so I, I mean, I was furious. I was absolutely yeah. furious. Like that's use and, and, and that story goes on and on and on. I mean, I'm I still say, difficult.
1: It's just so ridiculous that we expect 19-year-olds to know. Oh,
0: yeah. We keep asking 18 year olds what do you want to be to grow up? How about happy? <laughs> your best I mean, come on, you know, uh um, that's a whole nother story. Because okay. science now knows, you know, your neocortex doesn't even form till you're 27, 28, a little later in men. Oh, big surprise. And you know, people who actually can say authentically and meaningfully according to you know qualitative research you know I, yes i think this is the i think this is my authentic life i'm we're living the real deal here this is this is a good version of me let's keep this going people who get there which is a minority of people by the way rarely can say something like that in a, in a meaningful way before 32 to 38 so the whole point of being—we tell our Stanford seniors at 21, you're not broken. You're 21. There's nothing wrong with you. What you're trying to do now is set up your 29-year-old, so she's got a good shot at making the right call. Mm-hmm. You know, now do that productively and self-supporting. Don't go surf on a couch or hide behind your mom for the next six years and go do a failure to launch. But that doesn't mean you're supposed to have it all figured out. So it gets us to back to the question of discernment. So you know, if, if there isn't an answer, then how do you? How How do you, you? I guess you can't even know, can you? And that's not true either. But our whole cadre of ideas and our whole reference frame around what am I supposed to be doing how confident am I supposed to be that I get to live the right life I mean how does that even work there's a question just about everybody every thoughtful person
1: has a thoughtful person at any age too, not just Oh totally.
0: <laughs> the only thing I still do it, I'm 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 virtually there's no such thing as an emeritus lecturer that just doesn't exist. But I'm kind of that st- I'm down to a 10% appointment at Stanford. I'm just barely there. You know, Kathy, who you've already spoken with, you know, is doing all the hard work. But I teach in the Distinguished Career Institute, the DCI Institute, which is the Gap Year for Grown Ups program. So people 45 to 85, mostly 57 to you know, seventy, the the encore people, the boomers mm-hmm. thinking, "Oh God, now what? you know, and and that and designing a life is a backbone of that whole program. I mean, the the question the the poets has asked, "What will you do with the rest of your one wild and wonderful life?" never goes away. Mm-hmm. So getting this discernment thing keeps coming up
1: right, okay. okay. So if there's so much angst around, I need to know. And so if we just set right. that aside and focus, actually, how do you think about knowledge and discernment like sure. are, are they different or how well knowledge and,
0: and we throw in decision making so mm-hmm. our, so bill and my you know made it up ourselves definition of discernment is discernment mm-hmm. is at its lowest level it is decision making employing more than one way of knowing mm. You know, epistemology. So epistemology is the science of studying how, how do you know when you know. So we can you can know a lot about knowing. I mean, you may not actually know anything yourself, but you can know about knowing. And there are lots of forms of knowing. You know, So there is cognitive knowing, particularly, you know, left brain covering knowing, which we're very, very good at. You know, quantitative stuff, quality. You Show know, me scouting. the data. Let yep. me analyze it, the and data. All that. And then there's, you know, emotional knowing and intuitive knowing and social knowing and kinesthetic body knowing, you know, spiritual knowing if you believe in spirituality. And off you go. And they're all ways of knowing. And can you get access to them Mm. uh, in a whole personal way? So, you know, human-centered design, the formal name of design thinking, which is the platform on which all our work stands, believes in a holistic anthropological orientation of what a human being is. You're not, a Bill loves to say, you're not a brain on a transport system. You're a person. You know, and so like Dan Goleman, the founder of emotional intelligence, made a whole career out of that thing, you know, and he describes what this is all about and tells this particularly powerful story. It turns out we now know scientifically that what he calls the Wisdom Center, which is actually based, you know, down in the amygdala, you know, is where your brain actually stores, you know, your historical recognition of what does and doesn't work for you. The Blake stuff Mm -hmm. that Malcolm Gladwell talks about. And that part of your brain does not communicate to your consciousness in words. It's part of the ancient brain and it is not a word centered place. It communicates primarily in emotional feelings and connectivity to the geo intestinal tract, to your gut. So, gut feeling is a real thing. Now, that does not mean that your gut's always right. Mm -hmm. Um, What it does mean is that that's a form of knowing you need access to. Had you developed your affective as well as your objective forms of knowing, Mm -hmm. do you have access to your emotional intelligence? And do not make the easy modern world mistake that just because that form of knowing is inarticulate verbally, mm-hmm. don't think of it as unsophisticated. Uh. Your gut knowing is incredibly sophisticated. It's just not real articulate, which means you, as a mature attempting to be an integrated person, need to learn how to listen to yourself and tune into those knowings. Otherwise, you're working with a four crayon color box when you could have the 64.
1: <laughs> and so tell me more about that. How is it, especially in a society where, or I talk about yeah. we're both here in Silicon Valley, there's a lot right. of predisposition to that cognitive knowing. Right. When we make decisions, check my emotions at the door. So in, in the midst of that culture where we may not have habitually accessed right. these emotional centers of knowing, the somatic or kinesthetic centers right. of knowing, how can we begin... To learn how to do that.
0: For people who are even already struggling with their conversation, oh God, I thought I was going to give you some tools I could really use, you know, and we got those too, but the and prototyping is a good tool for that. It's experiential, it's objective and so on and so forth, all kinds of things. And we have a four-step decision-making model in the book, but that all being said, if you're a person struggling with either understanding this thing or noticing some resistance in yourself, right? I mean, I used to hear from my PhD candidates all the time, look, I really want to make a good decision. I don't, I don't want to make like an emotional decision. I want to make a good one. Yeah. So the definition of a bad decision was an emotional decision. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Your emotional center is valence your data. There is no such thing as an unemotional decision. Goldman loves to tell the story of a brilliant lawyer who had a corpus callosum clipped in, in a brain surgery and no longer had connectivity to that part of his brain.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And his life slowly, completely eroded to absolute destruction because he was still as brilliant as ever. His IQ was fine. His functioning was fine. But he couldn't make any decision because he didn't know the difference between this and that. Like, clearly, bigger is better, right? Because you want more money and the bigger tumor. I mean, no. The fact that bigger is better for money, but it's not for tumors, that's a valencing. Bigger is just a fact. It's not a preference. The preference is actually an emotional form of knowing. So you're making Mm -hmm. emotional decisions all the time, boys and girls. So sorry to tell you, (laughs) you just haven't acknowledged it. So what you've Mm -hmm. got is an internal resistance. So the first step I would, I would read some stuff on emotional intelligence, read some stuff on, read Dan Siegel, you know, on integrative thinking um, to give yourself, give that part of your brain that really wants to be in charge. Like I'm in charge. I'm the smart guy. Cut this crap out. That part of your brain, (laughs) you want to give some tools like, no, 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 we're doing the right thing. It's going to be okay i'm going to become an integrated person like joe bolt taylor and the integrated four characteristics. there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in this right now where the the new neurophysiological research is getting hard data on the soft stuff mm. so it's for actually thinking cognitive is superior objective cognitive is superior is really old school already i mean scientifically we we're way past that mm-hmm. um so i'd start with giving yourself permission to get into this right. and then a, an exercise i recommend people do is there's a knowing, actually, you know, there's peak experiences. I go back to a peak experience and write the journal entry of that, and isn't that wonderful? And now learn how to be in flow. Okay, there's a mirror of that, which is a peak knowing and a trough knowing. So go back to a hmm. time in your life when you really knew that you knew.
1: Hmm.
0: I really knew, like Susie's it. I remember that day. I'm just looking at her sitting on the park bench like, you're the one, babe. You know, and I, and I knew that I knew. Now try to go back to that particular moment in time, what led up to it. And write the detailed journal, the detailed state. I mean, the frame by frame. You know, watching the film on Monday morning after the game, exactly. And then try to remember, re-experience the moment, and where in your body did you experience it? How? I mean, because your brain announced it, but your brain didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Very often, people will find you know, I'm buying the convertible, and, they, and and your friends all kind of go, "Thank God." And you go, "What do you, what do you mean, thank God?" Like you know we've known you're gonna buy the convertible for four months we're just waiting for you to get around to hearing from yourself Like, how did you know i didn't know how did you know i knew are you kidding are you kidding you know most of us have that experience our friends or our spouses or intimates know what we know long before we've been willing to confess it to ourselves mm-hmm. why because we're putting out that message really clearly so it's it's self-awareness to so go back into when did it really work when did it really not you know i do I take that postdoc or not? Do, do I, you know, I, I applied for that grad program kind of on a whim and I still have a full-time job and then I'm like, God, I got in, I got in. I, what do I, do I go or do I stop out or not? And there's a, an acceptance deadline and the deadline's coming and I'm thinking, I'm sitting on the couch and agonizing a lot because that's really an effective technique. So I go, Ooh. no, groan louder. Ooh. <laughs> how, you know, and then, the, you know, it's, it's 11 o'clock at night, before the thing's gotta be e-stamped on that day. And I don't know what to do. And like, that doesn't work for me. Okay, so I didn't know. Now maybe you flipped Mm. it and you made a decision, but you went through another experience when knowing was really important to you and you didn't ever get to know. So write that one up
1: Mm.
0: and then do a compare and contrast. Like, what are we learning about how you know?
1: I mean, yeah. what I'm hearing you talk about is just the importance of externalizing some of these experiences that we've had and documenting them so that we can examine. It's
0: really articulate. You, you can't manage it if you can't articulate.
1: Mm.
0: You know, if you don't know what's going on, you can't make it any better. How do you, how do you decide? Just decide. That's great. Let's make that better. <laughs> so that, so decide better. That's the instruction. Yeah. So what do you actually do? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, another interesting piece of data on this is surrogation versus analysis. So Dan Gilbert, a, psychi- a psychologist at Harvard, does a lot of work in this area. Really good guy. He has a couple of things we like to refer to, but one of, there's a, a, a very detailed article on the value of surrogation versus research. And most people think I'm a really smart person. I know what I'm doing. Getting advice from other people is not very helpful because they're not me. Just give me the data, and I'll figure it out. And so, surrogation. Mm. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to simulate reality in my take the information, put it in my brain, and simulate what would happen if I take that graduate degree. As opposed to mm. so give me, you know, give me a whole bunch of data about the graduate school and the program and the curriculum and the, the faculty, and then I'll figure it out. That most people would choose that approach to it, or Instead of this thick dossier about this graduate school you're contemplating, you can meet these three people who just went through that school, two happily, one unhappily, and by the way, all three of them are totally different than you. (laughs) You can talk to those three people or read that dossier, pick one. Most people pick the dossier, and the research makes very clear, far better data, talk to the people. Why? (laughs) Because you're a human being, we're actually experiential, and even if they're different from you, complete strangers to you, your ability to interpret their lived experience, the narrative story of that existential encounter of being a grad student at that school will better inform your whole self about is this or is this not fitted to me mm-hmm. than all that data. This research actually was done doing speed dating. It's kind of a horrible research project. You know, and they <laughs> asked a bunch of women, would you rather read the guy's dossier or talk to three women who already had dates with this guy on the phone? Mm-hmm. And they go, well, I, I don't know these women, you know, and it turns out talking to, to women completely different from you who did or didn't like this guy, yeah, had a much more accurate outcome of whether or not you would in fact enjoy that date than reading everything you could get your hands on. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we're experiential, narrative-based persons who have holistic experiences in the world. We're not data processors. Yes. <laughs>
1: I'm glad you called that out, by the way, because one of the things that I'm passionate about is how is it that we can get back to decision making as humans, as opposed to assuming that clairvoyance is the goal and that perfectly rational decisions is the goal, which is part of the reason why I'm so glad you're talking about these different ways of knowing and how they're really critical in showing up as whole.
0: Let's let's talk about knowing. Like, I, I really want to know. Let's be clear on what the goal is. You can't. There is no known in the science of decision making. You go to the Stanford Business School, you know, and you and you take decision making science classes, and you early on learn what actually, in retrospect, is logically self-evident but makes people crazy is the correlation between the quality of the decision and the quality of the outcome is get ready for it zero (laughs) none yes. How well you made a decision has no predictor whatsoever on the quality of the outcome. Why? Because there are seven billion people on the earth with a fair bit of free will and you're not in charge. So you can do everything right and it still might fail. Now, over time, again and again and again and again and again, and again if you make good decisions, the probability of that correlating to a positive outcome is higher. Mm-hmm. So yes, good decisions are better than just throwing dice. But there is no logical correlation to a past yeah. cognitive event to a future experience of it. I mean, you know, <laughs> COVID doesn't care that you wore a mask. It was a good decision to wear a mask, but it doesn't actually care. You know, And when people really get that, like, oh, if I make a really good decision, it's going to work, right? No, 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 no. It's just a little bit. So first of all, that's true. And yeah. secondly, we're all talking about things in the future, which hasn't arrived yet. Nobody knows the future. <laughs> you can't actually
1: know. I'm so because, glad you're repeating this for the people in the back. Because, people ask
0: me all the time, like, you know, you, you, you seem pretty cheerful. You know, you're old. New. You've done a lot of stuff. You've had some failures and successes along the way. And you've got big decisions to make now. You know, how are you feeling about all this stuff? And I go, I feel great. And they go, so you're, you're pretty sure it's going to work. i go, you know, fair. I don't, maybe, you know. <laughs> and, and my position is that, you know, I, I feel reasonably confident that I've done a relatively competent job of giving a positive outcome its best possible shot and it might even work. I think that is as good as it ever gets, period. There's no nailing it. Now, you do something, it works out, you grant yourself total agency over controlling the universe when you're 29 to 35, and you start taking yourself <laughs> away the hell too seriously, you're reading a your resume and believing all that crap, you know, then, then you're, you're, and then the, it fails for the first time, you, you get really pretty head whipped. But the truth is, you know, you simply do the best job you possibly can. I mean, it may seem a little far afield, but it really is in the center of this conversation. All the time I encounter people who are upset because they made a decision and it didn't work. <laughs> and I go, here's my key thing as soon as something does not work out, what's the first question you ask yourself? So I have to ask you, so, I mean, you're, you're an executive coach nice. either for yourself or your many clients, you'll now amalgamate into a blender. You know, <laughs> what's the first question you encounter? First questions people ask themselves as soon as something doesn't work as intended.
1: Well, my clients will often, or uh, what am I saying? Yeah. I coach a lot of Taipei folks. So I yeah. think this too, if, as soon as it doesn't work, Oh, what could I have done better?
0: Yes. Or more negatively phrased. What did I do wrong? Right now? Questions have belief systems, and before you empower a question to be a life-organizing or particularly a life-judging question, be sure you believe it's belief systems. So huh? if the first question you ask after a failure or a disappointment of some kind is, ah, what did I do wrong, that believes two very, very powerful things, which are
1: what? That because something went badly that I did something wrong.
0: First and foremost, the causal entity that is most culpable for this outcome is me. I'm the one who created this outcome. <laughs> and belief number 2, which is upstream of that, a little more elusive but even more important is the flip side. Had I done everything right,
1: it would have all It would well. have
0: worked. So all I have to do is do execute my plan well every time and it will always work. Is that true? No. You can absolutely do it perfectly and still fail. That's the evidence of the correlation between decision-making and outcomes is zero. So (laughs) the point being, when you run into a failure in decision-making or I made a decision and the outcome was not as intended, you called that a failure. It was a good decision followed by all these degrees of freedom in a complex universe. And I took my best bet because all you ever get in this life is a better hedged bet, you know. and there's no guarantee of the outcome and off we go. And then the question is, Not what did I do wrong? Or even what did you do wrong? The first question is, this is what a designer would do. You start with reality and empathy. And the the empathy question is, Mm -hmm. what happened? Mm -hmm. Just what happened? You know, and it may turn out you had no culpability in it whatsoever. If I had it to do over, I'd do exactly the same thing. My small group, which has been meeting for 48 years, three out of four of those guys' <laughs> families have gotten COVID in the last two months. We're talking, and we're doing the wrong thing. One of the guys and his wife was up in Alaska, and they got sick, and blah blah blah. And so we debrief the whole thing. We're all working under COVID protocol. And we go, David, it's TD three. Tom and three Daves. I'm the founding Dave. They're all Dave. They're all you know, all old men, white guy Daves. Dave, Steve, or Bob, pick one. And so, so Dave two, we go, Dave two. Would you do it again? Would you intend Tina, you know, go do that trip again? He gets sick, and he goes. Yes. That was a good decision. We, we managed risk appropriately. We're not going the monastic route of COVID, which is like never go outside or see another person as long as I live. That works relatively well, but it's pretty severe. And yeah, I think we did the right thing. We just we just didn't win. So you got to get to that place Yeah. in decision-making.
1: Right. And I think what you're calling out is Sometimes when we take that that view of, oh my gosh, I if I had just done something different, right. everything would have turned out. I mean, when you get down to it, that's a view of really putting us at the center of the universe. It's incredibly control- arrogant. I- yeah. yeah. The, hub-
0: <laughs> the hubris is huge. And either, that doesn't mean it's not untrue. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, had I only called ahead,
0: you know, for, this is, you know, the you know, cliches have to work really hard to earn the status, by the way. They're not all wrong. You know, for want of a nail, right? I mean, the old, you know, for want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For the shoe, the horse is lost. For a lot of the horse, the rider was lost. For one of the rider, the platoon was lost. For a lot of the platoon, the, the battle was lost. For, for, for the want of the battle, the war was lost. So that loose horseshoe nail lost the World War, you know. And so, though you know, you could, those causality things, you know, Malcolm Gladwell did a famous reverse engineering decision analysis on the, the shuttle disaster. You know, the one that blew up Sally Field, you know, and how ex post facto debriefing looking with a bias toward causality will find error paths that are completely false. Mm. Totally rational, totally logical, identifiable and completely wrong. Because Mm. you start at the end and you find just one string that goes back to a start point and you go, oh, that's the cause. No, it's actually a complete. It it looks like a black swan diagram. There's 15,000 things going on that correlate at the same thing. You just found Mm. one line. You know, so it, it's very easy to come up with cognitive mechanisms to reinforce the falsehood right. about I'm in charge, I can create outcomes, and I should be right every time. And I, I really deserve to completely know. And by the way, I will say, I spent quite a bit of time recently with you know 28 to 38-year-olds struggling with a big decision very often about a partner, should I marry her or not? Mm-hmm. Or a big decision, go back to school, or leave town, or what have you, and they are immobilized in decision-making fear, because mm. they really, 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 really want to know mm. what if. And I, I don't, I don't have that what if covered. I'm just not sure. I want to be a parent, you know. And what I see them stuck in is what I call the distinction between certainty and faith. I mean, small F faith. I mean, I happen to be a deeply religious person and I have a big F faith, but by faith, meaning you're living with some degree of confidence and willingness to own ambiguity in a context where you don't know everything you'd like to know. You know, the biblical definition of faith is, you know, the assurance of things not seen, which doesn't mean you, you know stuff you don't know. What it means is you act as though you knew stuff you don't know while knowing you don't know. So you, you're freed of the disabling ambiguity without lying to yourself that it's not ambiguous. So like, Mm -hmm. I know I don't know. And I've come to reconcile my negotiation with the universe that I'm not clairvoyant and all powerful. And Mm -hmm. I'm willing to live in my finitude. I'm willing to live in a much more complex world than I'm in charge of. And I'm gonna go out there and do the best I can and hope for the best. And that literally is as good as it gets.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And incremental improvements of doing a little better job might have a higher outcome potential for you, but don't let that beat the humanity out of you. And now you're staying up all night, taking Ritalin every day, trying to work this stuff to freaking death. And now you've become, you just turned yourself into a robot. Mm-hmm. And all you got was a little better, by the way.
1: Right. You
0: didn't na- There's no nailing it.
1: You're heading in a direction that I, I wanted to go because, okay. yes, the the mindset of wanting to perfect every decision and know all the things is is one without faith and yeah I think it is. it's really it interesting is. how how faith can bridge the gap back to a world where we can still make decisions but acknowledge the things that are outside of our control and acknowledge yeah. just the greater world that exists yeah. beyond us yeah. And,
0: and, and part of that, and, and what you have faith in, by the way, I'm not trying to in, instruct you or require, and, and design, designing your life and design thinking has no particular, I mean, it's a very faithful way of being in the way, by the way, I mean, we don't talk a lot about the philosophical underpinnings of design, or else it almost never comes up, but when you think about it, it's, it's an outrageously optimistic orientation, it's a collectivist mindset, it believes in collaboration, it believes the idea the solution to your problem does exist. It's out there amongst us collectively. We're going to prototype. We're going to experience it together. We believe these are a complex human being. It believes a whole bunch of stuff, actually. We just don't start with a manifesto. And because it's such commonsensical stuff, people almost never push back on it. Because again, the the, the human orientation of human-centered design is pretty straightforward and, and widely accepted. So that that challenge of dealing with the certainty versus the faith, I mean, you might even just have a, the faith that, you know, Every now and then, your number is going to come up. You know, the, the ra- randomness is, let's say you're a total materialist nihilist. and you think it's all random? Well, yeah, your numbers is going to come up sometime. You might as well keep playing. All the way over to God loves you and has a plan for your life, you know, which, which is usually overinterpreted. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff on, you know, well, everything happens for a reason and why that's complete crap. Yes. You know, I mean, my wife died 19 months ago of cancer, right? You know, 10 years before the contract ran out. Uh, so the line, everything happens for a reason. Yeah, she got really bad cancer and it killed her. You know, there there is a cause, but that cause isn't necessarily ordained as the right thing for you. Shitty stuff happens all the time. Don't, you know, let's let's not go down that pathway. But nonetheless, the thing my faith versus certainty has to do, I think, with a big acceptance. I mean, Bill and I talk about acceptance all the time. Are you willing to accept your finitude? Are you willing to accept the unknowability of the future? Are you willing to accept the complexity of the world in which you operate? And if you are, you know, that it may suddenly feel hugely disempowering. Like, what? I mean, I can't, I can't deal with all this. Well, no, you can't solve all this, but you know, there are strong forces that align. I mean, look, stand on any corner, busy corner, Mm -hmm. and watch traffic for five minutes. Hundreds and hundreds of complete strangers occupying death machines weighing. 3,000 pounds hurtling, I mean, the the momentum of a 3,000 pound metal object going 45 miles an hour is unbelievable, you know, and they're flying around with nothing more than blinking lights and little pieces of colored paint on the ground. And nobody dies. (laughs) Every day, all the time. It's amazing. (laughs) The social contract works. I mean, watch those videos of traffic sped up. It's actually fairly terrifying. (laughs) Because <laughs> they go, Burr, and, Burr, like, oh, my God, they're going to die. And they do I mean, some do, but very few on a percentage basis. So, you know, my wife used to say, you know, she counted on the kindness of strangers. Most people are trying to be helpful most of the time. So there are a lot of forces in your favor. Gravity keeps working down. You don't have to wake up and kind of go, man, what if gravity's left today? I got to be ready for that. <laughs> if it's not down, I got to be ready, you know get it on the passenger side. I mean, you know, come on. There's a whole lot of stuff you can count on, just not everything. And sure, you'd like to know. But the other thing is anthropologically, do you believe in growth? So the, another whole channel to open up here
1: mm-hmm.
0: is one thing we try to encourage people to do is part of what you're doing is you're building a life and some decisions have long-term implications like, you know, going to college or having a child or buying a house. You know, these things have long-term implications. And you're you're the person making the decision isn't in charge of fulfilling everything that long-term outcome is going to require. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You're betting on your future self. Yeah. You're just asking, you're saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume that I will grow. And if I grow, then you know tomorrow I'm going to be better and yesterday I was worse and we get to tr- play again. You know, so all I'm trying to do is live in now. What, rather than get it right, like I can engineer an outcome, what mm. I'm recognizing is, oh, what I'm really doing is life is a long improv skit or it's a free-form dance party,
1: yeah. and
0: I'm just trying to learn my way into the participation. It's a it's mm-hmm. a flow model much more than a transaction model. Mm. So are actually contemplating whether or not we're going to write another book, where the centerpiece of the idea is that worldview the transactional worldview versus the participation worldview and it's really about are you you and are you trying to engineer outcomes are you trying to join the flow and it might be a little too woo woo to make it to publication but you know that's we we find again (laughs) and again again, (laughs) that's that's a big deal that's a big deal and a lot of young people are trying to transact their way to a guaranteed success Mm -hmm. and and it's killing it yeah so you know you do the best you can then you try again
1: Like what I'm hearing is, like when we focus on that transactional level, well, one, it's really exhaustive because we're trying to almost like white knuckle ourselves towards the right outcomes. But if we learn how to recognize what you said, our finitude and just focus on how do we plug into the things that exist around us, it's a more fulfilling and maybe less exhausting way
0: well is it okay with you to notice the immutable fact that the way reality has shaken out whether you think it's god's design of the universe or just the way the proteins banged into each other you know in the sunshine one day it turns out incompetent people are responsible for making the decision most of the time so long before my first wife and i ever had any children We made the decision to be parents. There was no objective evidence that we were going to be good parents. So if you want to know that you are not willing to create a human being and bring that child into the world unless you can guarantee that that person's parents are going to be killer parents, how do you get there from here? You can't. So there's some faith that you're going to grow into. I mean, I'm I'm a 28 year old young man who's never had a child. My father killed himself when I was nine. So I didn't have a dad, didn't have a model, really wanted to be a good one. Not really sure what the heck that meant, but I was committed to it. Like you know, I could promise I was committed, not promise I'm competent. And, you know, I just by faith assert, I hope to grow into a person that by the time, you know, Dave Jr. is a 15 year old and he asks me a hard question, I'll be up to it. But thank God I don't have to do that today. So many, 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 many times in life, you're asked to make a decision that will yes. be, if it were to be fulfilled today, you are not the right person to do that. <laughs> you're deciding that the person I'm about to grow into is going to deliver on this thing I'm committing to. Right. And the important decisions, almost all the important decisions in life have that component. You're betting on your future self. Mm-hmm. So you may not have acknowledged it to yourself, but you've been in the faith business your whole life. And as soon as you, you crossed over into compass adulthood, you know, you've been betting on a future self. Yeah. So we're all faith based animals. We're all, you know, assuming growth, assuming collaboration, you know. And so what so all you need to do is articulate that reality and let it start reinfecting the part of your thinking that believes it can be in charge because it got so used to using an Excel spreadsheet. (laughs) You know, I think the industrial revolution, starting the industrial revolution and even the railroads, certainly all the way through the internet, we have solved so many problems using technology and science Mm -hmm. and engineering. What we call engineering thinking, where you solve your way forward. There is a right answer. We run into right answers and solvable problems constantly. And that inadvertently means that's the way the world is. No, that just means how tame problems are, wicked, nasty problems, which are a big part of the human experience, Mm -hmm. are not solvable.
1: Mm.
0: There's no right answer. There are a number of good answers, and then keep going.
1: Mm -hmm. We probably
0: should talk about how to actually do this.
1: Yeah, tell me where you were thinking. Well,
0: I think, okay, so this is not in great detail in the book, because it it gets a little complicated. But Mm -hmm. in the same, course, we talk about the number one counsel we give people to improve their decision making through discernment employ more than one way of knowing
1: mm, uh, yep.
0: is pay attention
1: mm.
0: you have to, to what? learn how to pay attention so you know be able to interrogate yourself so i'm, I'm coming up on this decision and we you know And how do I feel about that? How does that look to me emotionally? How does that, you know, we do an exercise. You you know what Odyssey planning is. So here are three completely different versions of the next five years of your life. All right. And people kind of, which one do I choose? No, 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 no. The point of the Odyssey (laughs) plan is not choosing. The point of the Odyssey plan is to ideate prototypes and start imagining your way forward. That's the whole point of that. It's an ideation exercise, not a planning exercise. And But you will come back. And eventually you're going to come back to, okay, I've got some choices. Which of these strategic plans do I want to choose? And it's easier to evaluate them cognitively, and so we want to give you a tool. So one of our tools, which is narrative based, is turns out things look differently in retrospect than in prospect. Mm. So you say, okay, just imagine it's this, these are three totally different five-year plans. Imagine it's now three and a half years from today. You know, it's now two thousand and twenty-six, and 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 you're in your your living planet. You know, and you're waiting for your sandwich in Subway at lunchtime and in walks your old freshman roommate, you know, from Baylor College and go, oh, my God, Annalisa, how the hell are you? You know, oh, my God, Michelle, what are you doing? You know, And, and she goes, well, what are you doing? Oh, you know, now, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm running the Appaloosa Horse Farm in Montana. <laughs> what oh my god you're really doing you know how is that and then it's like sweet tell me the story and so what we do is we have people actually do a guided imagery imagination a role play mm-hmm. of their future self coming up with a story how's it going what's the good what's the bad you know what's your day like who do you spend time with you know mm-hmm. and suddenly it turns out thinking about do i want to you know start that horse farm in you know, montana as opposed to let me tell you the story of the woman who is mm-hmm is very, very different. there we do that multiple times. So there's, and so if you've been looking at a decision and you're considering alternatives and you're actually agonizing, then that means all those alternatives are viable. Mm-hmm. And so if I believe, again, a fundamental premise of designing your life is all of us contain more aliveness than one lifetime permits you to live out, i.e. there's more than one of you in there, mm-hmm. right? That's our anthropological commitment. I, be- I believe that, sort of observationally, I believe that scientifically, I believe that theologically, and most people do. And we ask people to actually come up with how many people they think they might be, if they could live parallel lives in the multiverse, you know, (laughs) on average, it's seven or eight. Okay, well, we lied, you only get to be one. So if there's seven or eight lives worth of you in there, then guess what, 87% of you is never gonna happen. Of course, you're missing out. That's the FOMO thing, that's (laughs) a a different issue. So we're not gonna make these decisions, there really are more than one me, the alternatives I'm considering are viable. That's the reason it's a hard decision. Oh, now it's not, there is one right answer. Mm -hmm. In fact, there might all be a right answer depending which version of me I'm wanting to live into. I'm -hmm. not picking the right answer. I'm picking which Dave to be next time.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. So what we have people do is we do those three stories retroactively and then we just say, what are you hearing? This in- hard decision making you're not deciding which is the right thing you're simply deciding which story is the one you'll make real Mm. there is a story of the happy you in every one of those alternatives you're agonizing so the happy you that stopped out and went to grad school for two years the happy you that kept working at intel the happy you that you know you know, went back and decided to become a caregiver for your mom in person rather than just write a check. I mean, all three of those people who lived really differently could be a happy person mm-hmm. if they chose the narrative appropriately. So then, oh, they're all in me. Which one do I actually want to live? That's all I'm doing. You know, if I'm really looking for right, I'm never going to get there. <laughs> And by the way, the only thing you really get to be in charge of is what you do know. So don't don't overcount what you don't know and don't over discount what you do know. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying being silly. I'm not saying don't look before you leave. I mean, you don't want to yeah. find out the pool is empty halfway down from the high dive. That's a bad thing. Do your homework. But you can't know everything.
1: Yeah. And so... The prospect of all the things that we don't know should yeah, I mean, keep it, us from it, there's moving There's no forward.
0: elimination of risk. There's only a reduction of risk.
1: Mm-hmm. And even then, it kind of plateaus after a while with every I new mean,
0: thing you I, learn. One of my really horrible examples is, you know, you do know that when you go to Taco Bell or any other, you know, food provider of any kind whatsoever, But you're going to Taco Bell, you know, your taco has some rat shit in it because there's no such thing as getting rid of all the rats. There's only getting it down to the FDA's level of tolerable rat shitness. You know, so you've never had a rat shit free taco in your entire life, you know, and it's okay. You know, I mean, you're
1: still alive. are still, still alive.
0: <laughs> you know, you, you, there's no, there's, there's never been a pure taco on uh, in the history of mankind or <laughs> hot dog or burger or you, tofu wrap, you know. And so the same is true in, in your decision making life.
1: Mm. I think there's a lot of wisdom there around because I think also there's what we don't know is infinite. And so it's kind of futile to try to know. Yeah everything and being able to center on what are the things that we know because in the end we're betting on ourselves and our ability to continue to grow
0: like you said and don't get me wrong people do get blindsided like how Mm -hmm. did you not check that out you know so no you want to do your homework but you have to understand there is a point of diminishing return right what i'm pursuing there is what, what are the deal killers? What are the really big issues? Where is my threshold above which is acceptable risk management, you know, or counting on my growing self to, to step up to that thing that I probably couldn't do today, you know, right. wh- where's that threshold? And since there is one and it's not the asymptote of total knowledge and complete universal control of the entire planet, <laughs> it's that that's what you want. You can't have it, but the point being, I have to decide when I'm being beset by an anxious concern, is this legitimate planning over which I have some contingency capability? Mm. Or is this wasting my time with anxiety? And pure worry is not only not helpful, it's a net loss. It is distracting mm. me. It is de-energizing me. It is, it is misrepresenting reality. So when I've moved into worry about which there's nothing I can do, Yeah. I'm over the line. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you have to go? (laughs) No. Anyway, back back to how do we do this thing? So the key thing, by the way, is practices. So Mm -hmm. affective ways of knowing. So tuning into your emotional intelligence, tuning into your intuitive intelligence, tuning into your body awareness, right? Yeah. You do these things through practices, whether it's journaling, whether it's yoga, whether it's walking the labyrinth, whether it's meditation. I mean, you know, you mentioned Silicon Valley biases. You know, it's really interesting, you know, mindfulness. Mindfulness as a as a behavior is highly accepted now, but it's not very well integrated. We go over and get really mindful in the morning, you know, with, you know, John Kabat-Zinn, and then we just go work our ass off. And hopefully that that centered self does a better job. I don't actually learn how to be centered in real time. And so you, if you both this stuff as an applique or a bumper sticker, I mean, it's a little better, but not a lot. So what you really need to work, and, and the way practices work is as a practice. Mm. You can't, oh, I've got a big decision coming. You better do some yoga this week. You know, <laughs> you, you can't do emergency practices. Mm-hmm. A practice is a practice because it's done over and over and over and over again. Runners will tell you, you know, you do the miles, you build the aerobic base before you do the strength and the speed work. If You don't have the aerobic base laid down, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. So practices in a whole variety of forms, almost all of which are effective, Right. They're narrative-based, they're emotional, they're spiritual, their, whatever it is. Those are about muscle, deep muscle memory, building yeah. the aerobic base that allows you, when the time comes and you're under stress, to access your own self-awareness. Yeah.
1: What, as we're nearing the end of this conversation, what are the last things you want to leave with listeners on this topic of discernment?
0: Well, first of all, that most people enter into some awareness of and hopefully rising competency and discernment out of a need to make a decision. Usually it arises in the midst of a very important decision whose deadline is now approaching and the big ideas light bulb didn't turn on in time. And I need to know right now. And, and so you're going to do the, so for most people who are starting you're probably not going to get better before the deadline on front. So first of all, just say one of the gifts of this decision is it awakened you to this problem and you're going to solve it for the next one. So that's thing one. And the thing two is most people start with discernment as a transaction. How do I make a decision better? And Bill and I accept that orientation by our definition is discernment is decision-making using more than one form of knowing. Okay. But I also will talk about decision-making, discernment as practice, and then discernment as formation. This way of living in the world, paying a lot of attention. You know, I go, I just sit in a staff meeting and afterward, can I ask myself, what did I notice about the social interactions? What were the flows of communication? Who is the voice where the summary of what our collective thinking was came out of? Very often, it's not the most powerful person. How did I feel about it? Really get to be an incredible observer of the kinds of things that feed discernment, right? How was my gut feeling during the meeting, and what did I notice about that? So just start taking your pulse, and so you start learning your way into that. And then you, of course, you want to start applying those things into decision making and living and debriefing and all that. And then you notice, oh, the things I did on the way to deciding, yes, I'm stopping after two years, so I'm going to go get the graduate degree, spend all the savings, and now I'm on the campus and I'm getting my master's in public health or what you know, and I'm doing this thing. How do I do that? Well, oh, the same discerning way. If I want to live the life fully that I chose my way into, I'm paying attention and noticing and learning as I go and taking stock of the growth process. Oh, living discerningly is how you implement a well-discerned decision. And then you kind of go, and all I'm really trying to do is I'm really trying to keep becoming the the be, do, become, so rather than the being, doing, Tension and discernment, like who's who's the real Michelle? You know, that's my being. Oh, I'm the podcaster. And that's just what I do. And so we get the be do binary tension. We go, no, 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 make that a generative cycle. It's be do become. So I start with who I really am. Go do stuff. You know, try a podcast. What are you, know, you know, and then while you're doing that, live discerningly, pay attention, learn, grow. Now I'm becoming. Oh, this aspect of michelling actually has more demonstration in this aspect of my life. And that's what I'm becoming. My being is now being upgraded or at least expanded. And if I pay attention to that, I can live into it more opportunistically. And now what you've got is a, a generative cycle of be, to become. Discernment is a powerful tool in energizing that ongoing movement of personal growth and maturation. Oh, it's really how I'm being formed and being formed is being human. Mm. So a, a mentor in my life who says, you know, how you define what it means to be a person matters. And his definition is the simplest way to describe a human being as a human is a becoming.
1: Mm.
0: I mean, are you a thing being implemented <laughs> or are you a becoming? And if you're a becoming, then live becomingly. And discernment as a way of being in the world, living discerningly, is a powerful support for being and becoming.
1: Wow. Thank you for that. I think that is a fabulous note to leave listeners on. Because, again, I think we started with that anxiety around needing to know. Yeah. Like where you took us just now, just recognizing that as human beings, we are always becoming. I think is, is a posture that will be helpful as, as we continue to feed this cycle. Nice talking to you. Thank you so much, Dave. You're very welcome. All right. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you heard something today that you found helpful, please share this episode or write a review. Also. If you're interested in more resources on how to make decisions with less stress and more clarity, like my quick start guide for untangling big decisions or the decision-making courses I teach, check out the show notes or go to askadecisionengineer.com to sign up for the mailing list. Be sure to check out other episodes this season. Next week, you'll hear from Katherine Rosbach, an expert decision and risk analysis facilitator and a colleague of mine from the Society of Decision Professionals. We'll be talking about how to shepherd decisions along in meetings and how asking can often be more effective than telling. Again, this is Michelle Florendo from Ask a Decision Engineer. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.